The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Welcome to Stuff from the Science Lab from HowStuffWorks.com. All right, Allison, neutron, a neutron walks into the bar, all right, and he asks the bartender for a drink. Bartender says, for you, no charge. <laughs> Hey, I'm Allison Lattermuck, the science editor at HowStuffWorks.com. And I'm Robert Lamb, science writer at HowStuffWorks.com. And uh, that joke came to us courtesy of uh, listener Christian. Yeah, he submitted it on our Facebook page. Yeah. Thanks, Christian. I like that one. That was a, uh, some people might say that joke was a stinker. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, that's, that's the great thing about cheesy jokes, is they kind of stink. And we're going to be talking about a number of things that stink uh, in today's podcast. Yes, because we're talking about science and its varied smells, and that's the name of the podcast, Smells Like Science. Yeah, and don't run away because we're not. This is not going to be just a discussion of like how the nose works or something. We're gonna we're gonna come at it from a number of different angles. In fact, our first angle we're gonna hit is outer space. And how does it smell? Well, um, it's interesting. There's actually far more data on this than I possibly imagined. Um, I don't know if you ever watched Futurama. I have. I've seen episodes, yeah. Okay. Well, there's a, there's an episode, I think a couple of different episodes, where Professor Farnsworth, the ancient, um, often naked mad scientist, uh, pulls out this thing called a smelloscope. And it looks like a telescope, except it has these two nostril plugs. Okay. And he just drapes his nose over it, and the plugs go up <laughs> into the nostril. And then he can smell distant regions of the cosmos. And, of course, this is fantastic and ridiculous. But, there's, like I said, there's a lot of information out there. For instance, uh, space itself 
according to some people who smelt it, uh, has an odor. All right. Uh, and this is not just people, you know, theorizing. This is coming from, um, uh, International Space Station science officer Don, uh, Petite. Um, and, uh, Don did not spell, smell the void directly. It's important to, to mention because he, you know, might be dead. Uh, no, he was, uh, merely opening the airlock, uh, so a couple of his, uh, crew members could come back in from a spacewalk. Right. And he started, every time he would do this, he would notice this peculiar smell, you know, and at first he's like, it's just something weird with the ventilation system. He's probably thinking, is it, is it me? You know, do I smell kind of funny? Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, uh, th- he kept noticing that it was, it was clinging to the spacesuits and the gear, um, especially the fabrics. Okay. And, uh, I should just read the quote, and this is, uh, this stuff, the, uh, he kept a little blog of his time up there. He says, quote, it's hard to describe the smell. It is definitely not the olfactory equivalent to describing the, um, the, the, the sensations of some new food as tastes like chicken. The best des- description I can come up with is metallic, a rather pleasant, sweet, metallic, metallic sensation. It reminded me of my college summers, where I labored for many hours with an arc welding torch, repairing heavy equipment for a small uh, logging outfit. It reminded me of pleasant, sweet, swelling Smelling uh, welding fumes, that is the smell of space. So aside from him seeming to have kind of a weird thing about welding, um, <laughs> it also, like, it reminds me of my cat, actually, because I, cause, like, I pick up the cat and I, like, smell the cat, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, not in, like, a sick way, you know, but just kind of the cat's there. And you no, kinda... you bury your nose in the fur. I totally get it. Well, maybe not bury, but, you know, it's like, you know, she's there, you smell her, and I always think, like, well, she doesn't really smell like anything, maybe batteries. So. You know, it's funny you say that because we recently went to the Atlanta Zoo and uh, we go a lot. You know, we have kids. Mm-hmm. And um, I've always noticed a peculiar smell at the gorilla exhibit. And to me, maybe it does have a little bit of a metallic odor huh. to it. But it, it is a distinctly animal smell. and it, But it does have a metallic kind of... But not a monkey tone. house odor. No, 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 no. no okay. Not monkey house. It's just okay. It's just a funky kind of metallic... But uh, back to space, back to space. Okay. Well, all right. So that's outer space itself. So from there, let's head to the moon. And here you have a number of, uh, of the uh, different astronauts who went to the moon uh, came back and they had some, um, some comments about especially how um, moon dust smells. Now, again, they were not going out onto the surface of the moon and sniffing uh, moon dust, but but it's everywhere and it gets all over you. And so they're coming back into the in from their walk and it's you know it's all over their stuff, all over the equipment, et cetera. So they end up sniffing it. They end up you know it's getting in their mouths and their nose, et cetera. And so um, you had a number of different like a uh, number of different Apollo seventeen astronauts that uh, were whiffing the stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That commented on it. Uh, one in particular, um, Gene Cernan. Yeah, Gene Cernan said that it smells like like spent gunpowder. And a number of the other astronauts backed him up on this. Right. So uh, Apollo 17 astronaut Jack Schmidt inhaled some of it, and he said it gave him a few hours of hay fever. Yeah. And when they asked him, it was interesting, they were asking him, it was like, did any of the other astronauts have this? And he said, well, they didn't say, they didn't own up to it. So it's sort of like this, like maybe that they, they had it too, but they didn't want to say anything. They're tough guys. Yeah. Yeah, all astronauts are tough guys. And, or tough women, as yeah. the case may be. Well, yeah, a lot of them were, were like the thing about the gunpowder is that these were guys who knew their way around some guns. This was not just a theoretical what gunpowder. You know, these were gun-toting Americans, of, you know, of, of the uh, of the late '60s, early '70s. Well, the smell makes sense in a way when you think about what moon dust is made of, right? Because almost half is silicon dioxide glass created by meteoroids hitting the moon. So these impacts, which have been going on for billions of years, fuse topsoil into glass, and they shatter it into tiny pieces. 
And it's also, moon dust is also rich in iron, calcium, and magnesium. Mm-hmm. Um, it's bound up in the minerals such as olivine and pyroxene. So it's actually nothing like gunpowder. <laughs> yeah, it's... But the impact thing makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds plausible. Like you look, like I didn't, I don't doubt it for a second when, when they're like, huh, it smells like gunpowder up there. All right, it's, you know, gray and dusty. But uh, they said also some of it comes from uh, like gases evaporating off the moon dust. And um, these are gases that get there via the solar wind. So, yeah, the moon is constantly exposed to hot wind, uh, this hot solar wind of hydrogen, helium, and other ions blowing away from the sun. So um, so a lot of that gets caught up in the dust as well. So we don't really have a, a firm answer of why these guys found it to smell this way. But, uh, you know, we, we can. there's some commentary on the, the various um, elements at play there. Well, if I never get to the moon, at least I have a fuller sensory picture. Yeah, it, it makes it a little... I don't know, stinkier. I don't know. I, the space thing was really surprising because you just think of space itself as being just kind of sterile, you know? Right. Uh, totally. I do. So let's talk about some of the other planets out there and what their particular odors are. Yeah. Well, Mercury, of course, closest to the sun and doesn't really have much of an atmosphere, at least not anymore. Very thin. Most of it was lost long ago. And what remains is mostly sodium, which r- doesn't really have a smell. So don't expect to find Mercury just by using your smelloscope. <laughs> what would you expect Mercury to smell like just off the top of your head? Well, being a fiery world, you kind of expect to get this like a sulfury hell smell, which, as we're going to see, you actually do get a very sulfury, sulfury hell smell off of some of these other planets. Uh, I'm thinking Mercury, maybe like peppers, you know, spicy yeah. food sort of smell. Ooh, like a curry, like a nice like a planet planetary curry kind of odor. Yeah, like nice. super tied chili hot. You know, that's yeah. what I would think that Mercury might smell like. Moving on to Venus. Um, this is supposed to be a sharp, pungent smell, not unlike unrotten eggs, due to the clouds of sulfuric acid, which you were just talking about. Right. And uh, Mars, they, uh, similar, in a similar note, they say you know, there's sulfur, acids, magnesium, iron. Put that all together in a carbon dioxide rich um, environment, and it's going to probably reek like rotten eggs. No kidding. Yeah. It's so, a bad smelling solar system we inhabit. Yeah, it's it kind of sucks for the uh, the first uh, Mars colonists to get there, right? But they, they're just going to get used to it. So Jupiter, it kind of depends on the layer, uh, what you're sniffing on Jupiter. So the lighter zones would smell like ammonia, then ammonia and rotten eggs, and then you pass through hydrogen sulfide, then bitter almonds, uh, which is going to be your hydrogen cyanide. And, and then it, and that's really cool because it's like a lot of these planets have similar odors, but this has like this rich bitter almondy. Poison center, you know, it's kind of like a, it's, it's like a, what a bonbon or something. <laughs> An enormous bonbon. Uh, but then it's also got, it's moon Io is kind of interesting because it's highly volcanic and. Guess, guess what? what? Yep. Smells like, uh, rotten eggs due to all the, uh, the sulfur and the volcanic eruptions. Saturn, we're not so sure what it smells like, but the moon Titan, um, so it's haze covered over a nitrogen-based atmosphere and a sealed surface and a pungent odor reminiscent of a petroleum processing facility. <laughs> That's not very pleasant, is it? <laughs> um, and, uh, oh, and then, of course, there's, uh, there's Uranus. Yep. Yep. And uh, the hydrogen and helium portions of the Uranian atmosphere are essentially scentless. And then there's that 2% methane content. Which I have to stress something here uh, because we're also going to uh, discuss another planet that has some uh, some methane content to it. There's this idea that methane is is stinky out there uh, purely because of, of the methane component in uh, various gases that um, you know come out of cows and humans, right, right. etc. Right. 
farts, uh, essentially. Uh, but it's important to note that, uh, that farts, um, also contain a number of other elements, all right? These, uh, tiny amounts of hydrogen, carbon dioxide, methane, methane, uh, hydrogen sulfide, um, ammonia. This is all mixing together and, and this is, this is all a recipe for, for bad odor. Methane on its own is, uh, is, is, is not going to stink. Okay. So, so again, Uranus, nothing really smelly going on there. Same with Neptune, very similar environment. Yeah, but you know what? That doesn't surprise me because I think of Neptune and Uranus very similarly. They're like brothers in the solar system. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think of them as having very different traits. You know what I mean? Yeah, like two strange brothers that hang out on the outskirts of the solar system. And then for all you guys who uh, bemoan the lack of Pluto amongst our solar system, we do have some info on Pluto. And that's a since it's such a thin atmosphere composed mostly of methane, so you mainly you got nothing going on there. Interestingly, though, to, to the untrained uh, eye or nose, uh, people would think, oh, but Pluto's got methane, um, you know, atmosphere. It's going to suck. You know, it's going to really stink. But it, you know, it doesn't. It's, it's odorless. Which, incidentally, if I can run through this real quick, uh, I did run across, uh, you know, all those different websites where people ask, que- random people ask questions and random people answer them? Yes. Somebody had asked the question, uh, like, what do the planets smell like? And somebody had, had replied, and I, and these are completely uh, not true, but they said that Mercury smells like refried beans, uh, Venus smells like gasoline, Earth smells like unwashed socks, Mars smells like Martians, Jupiter smells like muddy dogs, Saturn smells like burnt paper, Ur- Uranus smells like dead trees, Neptune smells like a turtle, and Pluto smells like qua- squab. What's squab again? I think it's like pigeon meat, like some sort of a... Oh, right, right. Yeah. I think you're right. Which, so anyway, I just found that amusing. Yeah, so let's head back to the Earth for a second and check out some of our planet's most pungent residents. Oh, yeah, that's right. Some uh, animals and plants certainly uh, do put out an odor. Yeah, here on Earth. And uh, this section gave me a chance to revisit one of my favorite articles on the site, and that is, Why Does the Stink Plant Stink? And it was written by uh, freelancer Jonathan Atterbury. So in the article, Atterbury takes us back to 1878, and he imagines trekking through the Sumatran rainforest alongside botanist Eduardo Beccari. He's Italian, as you might be able to tell. Yeah. And so as the Italian is exploring the forest, he gets a whiff of rotten meat. Next thing he knows, the wind shifts and a stench floods his nostrils. The smell is very, very bad. It's a symphony of spoiled eggs, roadkill, and dirty laundry. Hmm. So imagine that Bakari looks toward the source of the odor and behold, the stink plant, a.k.a. Titan Arum. And this is a, this is a great, um, Time to do a quick Google search to see this image or go ahead and go to that article and look at the picture because it just looks bizarre. It's just enormous and kind of looks like a fountain and kind of looks like a something from the set of like classic Star Trek. Yeah. Well, it's this massive plant sporting a massive pillar and it's, it is kind of phallic. That's the, uh, the scientific name, Amorphophallus titanum <laughs> or titanum. So the sting plant is an inflorescence. And what does that mean? It's a, it's a group of flowers clustered around a central column known as a spadix. And it's surrounded by this leafy structure called a spathe. Okay. Spath. And why does the corpse flower smell so terrible? Well. Take, take a guess. I mean. Yeah, to attract insects. Of course. Yeah. And it's such a large plant that um, it can take a year or more for the plant to store enough energy to bloom. Wow. So even then, the plant can only sustain its bloom for a couple of days, though. So it's, it's you know, it's, it has this really terrible smell, but it's it's fleeting. And because these plants are located so far apart from one another and they bloom, you know, on such an infrequent basis, mm-hmm. they want as much insect attention as possible. 
So they get a whole bunch of like bees and beetles there crawling all over them, spreading the pollen around, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's also interesting that um, scientists theorize that the overall appearance and smell help the plant masquerade as a giant hunk of decaying meat. It does look, yeah, it does look kind of gross. <laughs> it does yeah. look kind of I mean, fleshy. Yeah. Again, you really need to check out the article because it's, it's hard to imagine. It, but it's, it's like this giant pillar. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as long as your arm, if you were to hold your arm in the air right now, but even longer, I think it can be maybe a couple feet. Huh. Yeah, the stink plant is by no means the only malodorous plant. In fact, a whole group of them are called carrion flowers, which is kind of an interesting name for a flower. I mean, the two don't necessarily go together when you think about flower, carrion, carrion flowers. Yeah, we have a, we have a great botanical garden here in town um, and some lovely smelling uh, flowers. I almost kind of want them to put on like a carrion flower exhibit, you know, just to you know, just so I could run through real quick, at least, and, and sniff these and really get the full experience. Yeah, I have no doubt that would be a big hit with the ladies of the garden club <laughs> set. So not only do these carrion flowers smell, like we were just saying, but they also tend to look the part, right? So, for instance, the Stapelia asterius flower is coated with fine hairs, and that's handy because it makes the flower resemble moldy meat. Wow. And then we have the Rafflesia arnoldi, and that's the world's largest flower, and that's another fleshy carrion flower located in Sumatra. Wow, so Sumatra's just ripe with this stuff, like literally ripe with this stuff. So what about animals? I assume, you know, naturally not every animal is going to smell as nice and metallic as our cats and gorillas, right? Right, right, right. Um, so I, I had fun researching this part of the podcast, and I came up with a couple candidates for okay. the uh, most pungent animal on Earth. And one of the candidates I'd never heard of before, and this is called the Zorilla. See, now that just makes, that just sounds made up. Zorilla. It kind of does. I mean, it's uh, like I'm picturing like maybe a gorilla with zebra stripes. Is that what it is? Um, well, no, Robert. It's a striped polecat. Oh, okay. And it's a it's a skunk like animal, and it's a member of the weasel family. Okay, I see. I was wondering when when we were going into this, I'm like, is a skunk going to be the stinkiest animal? Because that's the one that instantly comes to mind. It does. It definitely does. Uh, but we're going with skunk like in this case, and I, okay. I'm I'm weighing in on the zorilla. You want to know why? You want to we want to know why this convinced me that that zorillas might take the prize as the why. Because they can ward off lions with their stink. Wow. They can ward off lions. The king of the jungle. Yeah. Or, read... well, the, the grassy plant, whatever. <laughs> but but still, yeah, warding off a lion, these guys are ferocious. You'd think they wouldn't shy away from a, a slightly stinky meal. Well, I read one editorial about the Zorilla that said its anal glands can be smelled from a half mile away. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. Okay, I have well, another. Is gross. Are you ready? Are you yeah. ready for my okay. next nomination? Now give me more of this. <laughs> you know, I'm finding something to be true in this uh, podcasting series we've been doing. I think I have a stronger stomach than you do. Maybe so. I mean, they're yeah. I mean, if you listen, I mean, with the worm and the and the woman's foot and listener mail. Well, that was worms and a woman's foot. That was kind of gross. That was pretty cool. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it was cool, but it was you know, it's a pretty grim image. Right. So my next nomination. Getting back to uh, pungent okay. animals. Is a uh, is a beetle, the bombardier beetle. Okay. I've seen I've seen clips of these guys. Yeah, yeah. So these beetles, when physically assaulted, um, they squirt out this hot quininoid spray from their abdomens, and the African bombardier beetle can aim its spray in pretty much any direction. Mm-hmm. So I was reading about this uh, in the journal Proceedings in the National Academies of Science. And um, the reason why this beetle has evolved such an olfactory defense is, if you can remember, they can't instantly take to the air. So it has to... Stand its ground, yeah. Right, right. I mean, it can eventually take to the air, but not instantly. And, you Mm -hmm. know, 
an instant can be, you know, life or death, yeah. as we all know. And so I like this, uh, I really like this beetle. And according to the authors of the paper, um, in the proceedings, we'll just call that for short, uh, it can discharge upwards of 20 times before depleting its glands. And this is, this is kind of cool. The discharges are accompanied by audible, audible detonations. So it's like it's setting off these little smell bombs. Wow. And, uh, they do deter predators. Yeah, I've seen some, uh, I, th- I think this is one of the ones that, um, that uh, some scientists were interested in, um, in the, you know, in the field of biomimicry, like looking how, um, how uh, nature has evolved to carry out certain processes that we might want to carry out. And, uh, you know, they're very inter- interested in like, um, and like, like being able to, to take this, uh, squirting mechanism and apply it to some sort of a gizmo or another. You know, it's just one of the amazing uh, uh, little uh, evolutionary traits that's come around. That's cool. Yeah, so those are two of my nominations for Most Pungent Animal. Of course, if you guys have ones that you'd like to send us, please do feel free to email them on over or post them on Facebook. But uh, let's talk about one that doesn't smell so bad. Well, you know, and this is, of course, subjective because smell is subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, like a koala. Really? They're yeah. so adorable, and yet they stink? Well, a or lot they... of people have talked about koalas smelling like cough drops. And do they, in fact, smell like cough drops? I've never heard this particular... Like they're addicted to cough drops? or Oh, no, I guess it's their their diet, right? Right. So if you remember, a koala is the, uh, the furry Australian marsupial that sleeps all day, and it's uh, cradled up in the tree branches, and it wakes up, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, for a few hours, munches a couple eucalyptus leaves, and it conks out again. Yeah, because it probably has to spend all that time digesting food that's probably not that easy to digest. Right, it reminds me of the panda in that their digestive system, they they have such a specialized diet, Mm -hmm. right? You know, the koala just eats these uh, eucalyptus eucalyptus leaves and then it, you know, maybe eats a couple other random things, but mainly eucalyptus. Mm -hmm. You know, and the panda with the bamboo. Right, yeah, they're all specialists. Right, and but their digestive systems have such a hard time accommodating that specialized diet, so it just doesn't really make sense to me. Yeah, well, that's why you don't see any uh, any specialist um, species um, like building cities and ruling the planet. You know, I mean, we're we're more generalist. We can eat just about anything. You know. Okay, so yeah. you're saying that pandas can't rule the planet because they eat bamboo. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And and also, it's like you go you look around a city. What's running everywhere? Raccoons, rats, uh, foxes. You know. I don't know if foxes can eat. I, eat. I don't think foxes are running everywhere anyway. Oh, yes, they are. Really? Yeah, London. Okay. Foxes are everywhere in London. Seriously. Like, you don't see them as much because, and I'm not making this, it sounds like something I would make up, but but no, there are a lot of foxes, uh, in uh, in uh, especially in the London area. Well, so getting back to koalas and cough drops for a sec. Sorry. <laughs> Off the, uh, the British foxes. Um, so do these marsupials actually smell like cough drops? Well, right. So it eats these leaves from the eucalyptus tree. And remember that eucalyptuses uh, are grown for their gums, their resins, their oils, and their woods. Mm-hmm. And then eucalyptus oil acts as an expectorant. So it loosens the phlegm in the respiratory passages. And that's that's great for those of us who have a cold. <laughs> uh, it can be an antiseptic and it can also function as a deodorant. But according to uh, freelancer Julia Layton and the Australian Koala Foundation, Mostly it's the young ones that hmm. smell like eucalyptus. As they get older, the smell fades, and a mature koala will smell musky or like urine. And uh-huh. uh, not so much like a drugstore cough drop. More like an old person's home, I guess. I guess so. I so, guess so. so when cuddling up to a koala, go for the young ones, 
grab the babies. Well, I, I, did, I did look around a little bit um, to see whether koala breath smelled like eucalyptus mm-hmm. or perhaps a koala, a koala passing gas smelled like eucalyptus. <laughs> well, <laughs> what it, a day of research you've had. I know. Was, well, we've both had, I guess. It was pretty fun. So what do you have? Oh, um, well, this is pretty interesting. Um, so I was, I was looking at some... Uh, we're gonna we're gonna leave the animal kingdom, well, most of the animal kingdom, and get back into the human world here okay. of uh, of scent. And uh, I was reading a couple of uh, of studies that had to do with the way suggestion plays into our our uh, our, our sense of smell. Uh, for instance, there was a 2005 study from Oxford University. Okay, and this one this one sound, reminds me a lot of uh, in our wine episode we right. talked about the neuroscientist who. Had everybody come over for wine testing and started having all these crazy little uh, experiments to see if people could tell like good wine from bad wine mm-hmm. or or you know white red wine from white wine that's been dyed red. Well, this guy um, by Professor Edmund Rolls invited volunteers over and had them smell uh, cheese. Except uh, sometimes he labeled the cheese cheddar and other times he labeled it body odor. <laughs> just to see what their reaction uh, would be. And then, of course, his team scanned the volunteers' brains. So, uh, you know, it wasn't like a great dinner party, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, so they, they scanned their brains to see what the, what's going on in their, in their heads when they're smelling these things, right? All right, so when the cheddar cheese was labeled correctly, when it's cheese that's labeled cheese, higher areas of the brain that interpret smell were activated, okay? Okay. Uh, then they would give them a whiff of just clean air labeled as cheddar cheese, <laughs> and it activated the same areas but to a lesser extent. So it's kind of like the, you know, there's, there's, the suggestion is still doing a lot of work, right. but, but not as much as the, the real thing you know, would, uh, would do. Okay, and the researchers also um, made sure to check how big a sniff they were taking to see if that was playing any effect, but uh, that didn't have any effect on, on the results. So anyway, the, uh, the, results, the result of this experiment was they found that uh, the pleasantness of the odor um, is being modul- modulated in a part of the brain called the, and I may get this wrong, the orbitofrontal cortex, uh, which is involved with emotions. All right. So this is like a high level influence on, on, on how you're smelling things. Uh, and th- for instance, this is the uh, same area of the brain that's sometimes damaged in d- d- uh, dementia cases or, uh, if someone's in a severe accident. Okay. And that can alter your, it alters your appetite in some cases. Um, it can, it can apparently even make you more prone to obesity, but like the appetite thing is key because, of course, scent plays a key role sure. in, in you know, what we like to eat. So, um, so anyway, that's a really interesting case, um, uh, of just, you know, just somebody telling you how something smells. And, and this is, this actually goes in, I don't know if you've found this with kids, but I've often heard people talk about like when you're feeding kids like new foods, like you never let them say it smells bad or you, ne- you certainly never refer to something as stinky. Yeah. That makes sense. Have you come across that? Do you let your kids say food is stinky? Uh, I don't know if they know the word stinky yet. They re- wow. You were doing great. <laughs> they know some other words they shouldn't know, but Stinky's not among them yet. Um, another interesting case that I that I came across uh, goes back to April Fool's Day in, in 1965. Okay. Yet um, this was like a obviously an April Fool's joke on BBC TV. Okay. And uh, a pro- they had a guy. Was, Did it involve foxes? No, no foxes. <laughs> um, but a professor from uh, London University comes on, and they go through this whole thing where they're going to unveil smell-o-vision. Smell-o-vision. Right. And they, they, you know, they unveil some sort of hokey kind of um, 
you know, kind of like a look around you esque explanation about how they're going to transfer the scent molecules and like in like into like smaller like digital molecules or something and like transfer it through the screen. So okay. basically, you'll be able to get close to your TV and smell. That's a hilarious right? image of everybody getting close and sniffing their TVs. Yeah, and apparently people fell from it and were like, you know, calling it like they'd put some coffee or something up there, and people were like they were like, yeah, I can totally smell it. Uh, and then in uh, 1977, uh, a Bristol University uh, psychology lecturer named Michael O'Mahony uh, tried the same thing, all right? And uh, he uh, he told viewers that they were, uh, they were going to smell hay and grass and no, like, cow crap or anything, but just like a nice field, you know, a pleasant kind of, uh, you know um, – you know, outdoor environment. And people, people again, like people claim to have smelled it. They, they like wrote in, you know, some of these people may have been lying or just wanting to, you know, you know, that's, they kind of factored that into it. But a lot of people said, hey, I can, I can totally smell it. One person apparently even complained of hay fever. No kidding. Yeah. Just like May- that astronaut. Yeah. Maybe he was smelling the moon dust. Maybe the astronaut but. was that. Yeah. No. So anyway, so we've touched on stinky animals, uh, how space might smell, how space, how, Things smell differently depending on what kind of uh, other sense data we're combining with it. Um, I enjoyed this podcast. Yeah. I had a lot of fun researching it. Yeah, it's kind of a smorgasbord, but I think it's kind of like you, you put all the elements together. And it really shows you how, how varied the world of, uh, of at least our own uh, you know, sense uh, perception really is. Yeah, definitely. Hey, if you guys want to tell us about your, your favorite smells or your favorite bad smells or what you think... Uh, Uranus might smell like. Yeah, I'm, I'm especially interested if anybody out there um, who's like really, really knows what they're talking about with uh, with the uh, like the atmosphere of other planets has additional ideas, uh, even contrary ideas about what some of these these places might smell like. I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, send us an email at science stuff at howstuffworks.com, or you can always uh, hang out on Facebook. We're on Facebook too with uh, stuff from the science lab, or uh, Twitter as well with a uh, lab stuff handle. Yeah, and. Uh, Give us a, a cool science joke and uh, give us your name and where you're from and we'll throw it up at the front of the podcast. All right, cool. Thanks for listening. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. 
We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.